Hey everybody, this is co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley with a quick introductory note to this brand new episode of Close Talking. This episode deals with a whole lot of different issues, but we touch on repeatedly the United States' relationship with uh, the various conflicts and civil wars going on in South and Central America during the 1980s. Uh, we talk a little bit about how those conflicts have been forgotten and remembered, but there was a news event that felt like it needed special attention in the context of this conversation, and that is that Oliver North was made the president of the National Rifle Association, the NRA. Oliver North is probably best known as the person indicted in the Iran-Contra scandal, which, for anyone who doesn't know, that was the sale of arms to Iran, which was under an arms embargo at the time, uh, to fund right-wing militias in uh, Nicaragua, the Contras. So the fact that he could do all of that and still end up the head of one of the largest lobbying groups in the country is a pretty powerful example of how that era and U.S. involvement with despicable groups uh, is remembered and has affected people's careers, which is that it has largely been forgotten or brushed under a rug and that those people's careers have continued on. So don't want to go on for too long. Without further ado, let's get into the episode. Welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I'm your co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we have, as always, a great poem for you today. One of my personal faves that I've been thinking about for a while. It is called, Because One is Always Forgotten, by Carolyn Forche. And, um, yeah, a little context before we read it, because that will be helpful. Um, it's from... Forche's collection, The Country Between Us, uh, which came out in 1981. And much of it takes place when she was living in El Salvador. Uh, she was working as a journalist for Amnesty International. And uh, many of these poems uh, came out of, of that. And this poem is, is one of those. This one is an elegy for Jose Rodolfo Vieira, who was... He was the head of the Salvadoran Agrarian Institute. Yes. And he was um, notably assassinated in 1981 along with two Americans. Um, he was working, this was during the beginning of the 12 year uh, civil war in El Salvador and was under uh, Duarte's rule. Um, and he had. Vieira had figured out that um, some of the money that had been designated for agrarian reform uh, was not uh, going to actually uh, be used for that, but would be pocketed, was being pocketed by Duarte's administration and other people who were in the military. Um, and so as... Uh, Fiera reported on this, um, which was sort of thought to be why he was uh, murdered. Um, and I think that's perhaps 
most of. Um, a little bit about Forche is that she's best known for, in some ways, uh, for her anthology, Against Forgetting, um, 20th Century Poetry of Witness. <laughs> yep, and that's certainly where I know her from. And she's credited for sort of coining the term poetry of witness. She's she named a kind of genre of poetry, um, and that that anthology sort of compiles um, mostly poetry from sort of like war times or times of sort of severe violence uh, that are sort of bearing witness to those events. Um, but this book was also a huge success, and it was actually a bestseller which rarely happens for poetry. Um, and so she did come to prominence, I think, um, really with, with this and then with the anthology. Um, her first book also won the Yale series of Younger Poets Prize, which came out when she was 24. Um, I think that's, that's most of the context, I think, that you need and we can talk more about it later. Um, Sounds good. Okay. Because one is always forgotten. In memoriam, Jose Rodolfo Vieira, 1939 to 1981, El Salvador. When Vieira was buried, we knew it had come to an end. His coffin rocking into the ground like a boat or a cradle. I could take my heart, he said, and give it to a campesino and he would cut it up and give it back. You can't eat heart in those four dark chambers where a man can be kept years. A boy soldier in the bone-hot sun works his knife to peel the face from a dead man and hang it from the branch of a tree flowering with such faces. The heart is the toughest part of the body. Tenderness is in the hands. Wow. Yeah. Pretty intense. Very intense. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of the, um, the poem we discussed by I. Uh, I've got to stop loving you so I killed my black goat. Um, at least in terms of the the kind of brutality of the imagery, of the literal imagery, and the way that it's sort of used for um, figurative purposes. Definitely. And I think the I, I had the same thought. Um, but it's interesting because it's in the context of uh, an elegy, which is like a commemoration. So I feel like there's this really intense imagery, but it's almost softened by the extra textual setting in some ways, because its purpose is always pointed towards uh, this life that has been lost, which doesn't make it any less powerful. It just gives it a different feeling, I think, when that kind of imagery is deployed. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Um, and it's different in Van I's poem, which sort of, you could argue, deliberately plays up the grotesque in order to make a point or to evoke something in particular. Whereas in this poem, uh, both as as you were saying, it it's pointing to this you know this elegy this this tender sense of loss, uh, but also the the sort of brutality that it's depicting, um, 
is is just sort of what's present. Um, you know, the the war, the civil war, and everything that was that was going on in El Salvador at the time was was quite horrific. And so, um, her her descriptions of it aren't like hyperbolic in that sense. In the in the way that I's poem, um, you know, might have been leaning towards in some way. And I's poem also sort of takes off at the end and goes into these really wild images about you know, the acid rain and all this very much creates a heightened atmosphere, whereas this feels very grounded and real the whole time. There are these stark images, a boy soldier in the bone hot sun cutting off a person's face. But in the context of the El Salvadoran civil war, you know that that is probably a scene that has been witnessed, um, to use a, a very loaded term, uh, by either... Carolyn Forche is the poet, or it has been reported to her that somebody has told her about this. One thing I should just to, a couple other contextual things. Yeah. Um, campesino means like peasant farmer um, in Spanish. And so that's just um, in the poem, I could take my heart, he said, and give it to a campesino and he would cut it up and give it back. Uh, and then also, this was something I didn't know until I did more research. Um, but the part, uh, you can't eat heart in those four dark chambers where a man can be kept years. The four dark chambers um, are on the one hand referring to sort of the four chambers of the heart, but on the other hand are referring to um, what was referred to as the dark place, La Oscura, which was uh, these one meter by one meter prison cells. Uh, where people could be kept. And so that's also a reference to to those things. So yeah, those are excellent notes, which are probably good for for getting getting us on the ground where we need to be. Um, so my question is that this is an elegy, right? And an elegy is usually it's a remembrance basically of a life that has been lost. But the title of this piece is because one is always forgotten. So I'm a little curious how you take that title. Yeah, that is a good question. I know question. I have a couple of thoughts, but I'm curious to know, because I know that you've sat with this poem and thought about it more deeply than I have. I'm curious to know what, what you think. <laughs> um, no, I, that is a very good question. I suppose my first thought is that it's, in a way, the occasion for the elegy. So because one is always forgotten, this poem is a small way of writing against that or writing to preserve uh, this person's memory, um, but also their sort of place in history and the history and resistance that he sort of represented at the time. Um, and so it, it seems to be like, because one is always forgotten, I have written this poem. Um, at the same time, I'm not entirely convinced that's the only thing because it's such a pessimistic, it's such a, uh, um, a definitive <laughs> title. One is always forgotten. It's not because one can be forgotten or like it's possible to forget things. I've written this poem. So it seems even in the, the act of, of writing this in remembrance, there's a sense of defeat about it. Um, 
which I think she gets at in, in this first line, which is still a little unclear to me exactly, but when Vieira was buried, we knew it had come to an end. Um, this kind of his, his death and his burial um, signaling the end or the death of something larger. I assume some kind of resistance um, to, to um, Duarte or um, some, something there. But so, but then I, I, I sort of am struggling with where she's going after that, I guess. I like all of that. And that's pretty much where I went with it as well. Uh, it also put me in mind of the fact that a term that's often used in reference to what happened to dissidents and even just people who you know were accused by neighbors or who got on the wrong side of the government in a lot of these different uh, South and Central American conflicts of the 70s and 80s, not just the El Salvadoran civil war, but more generally is being disappeared. And so being forgotten and being disappeared seem highly related to me. And that's not necessarily what happened to Vieira, but I think it does call to what was happening to people like him in his country and in other countries who were in similar situations. Yeah, no, that that seems right. Um, and, and just for additional context, the, the Civil War was um, around 12 years long. It started with a, the coup that was uh, October 15th, 1979, and lasted until uh, January 16th of 92. And the UN estimates that over 75,000 people were killed. And and that and that an unknown number of people were were sort of disappeared and never you know their bodies were never found, um, and I think it also speaks to I, I wonder how specifically Forche was talking about this, but one of the projects of you know witnessing or this kind of writing or you know journalism, especially um, you know from what would be considered, you know, like the the lefty side or the the radical left or whatever, um, is that, you know, the people in power, both in El Salvador, but also, you know, in the U.S., who certainly Forche had in mind as her audience, at least in part, because, you know, she she's American and she was publishing it in America, it's in English, etc., um, is that, you know, often these uh, resistances are erased from historical memory. So in addition to the, the physical, uh, literal killings and disappearances, there's there's a, an erasure that, that happens in the sort of writing of history itself. And so the poem, you know, as it strives to remember this particular man, is also sort of claiming a, a, a spot in the historical uh, record um, of this this particular resistance that was happening. Totally, totally. And I think this poem also, in time, has been proven to be very relevant just because the United States has begun to reckon more completely, not anywhere near enough, but with its own complicity in many of these various conflicts. Uh, I mean, they supported the regime against which Vieira was working 
uh, I think it was in 1987 uh, that Jose Duarte went to the White House and met with Reagan and Reagan. It's some sort of like really horrible anodyne, something like we admire your efforts on behalf of democracy and human rights in El Salvador or something, just some really gross you know, diplomat speak that also indicates just how much these the people in power at the time in the United States were willing to support right wing juntas and military men because they were worried about the various Marxist guerrilla groups. In many ways, having a poem like this that not only remembers the violence of the time, but calls out one person and remembers a person who stood up against that institutional abuses of power and violence is really powerful, particularly over time. I think it gains a, it, it holds a power even when it is written and first said that is unique. And I think it gains a different kind of power over time. Just jumping off that, you know, the, like there's so much sort of stupid conversation about the kind of immigration quote unquote crisis that the U S is having. Um, and you know, and a lot of the, the, you know, people and kids who are seeking asylum, you know, are coming from El Salvador. And there's a real lack of history in the way that people talk about that. It's like, in, in the, in the, like, mainstream conversation, it's like, no one ever talks about why they would be um, coming here, or why the conditions got so bad. And one thing that this poem does a little bit of speaking to and plays a part in is is sort of locating you know the conditions for future conditions and as you say the U.S. is you know um, not just complicity but like active uh, role in in facilitating those conditions um, and sadly not a whole lot has changed because you see the same sort of apathy combined I mean really not just apathy, but in some ways, as you're saying, active work in the in what's going on, particularly in Syria, just a complete abdication of any desire to be involved. Yeah, it's depressing. Indeed. Um, we both went to the same public high school, which was like moderately liberal or whatever. You know, I probably got among the more liberal public educations that I think many people did in the country. And... There was a very little sense that I got, although there were, I think, some teachers that did a better job about it, of the the extent to which the U.S. you know supported oppressive regimes in Latin America and elsewhere. And and I the one example that really sticks out of just like how deep it goes. This is like way back. Is we had to write an essay about manifest destiny. That was like the question was like to what extent was it like good. <laughs> Oh, and it's like it was bad for sure it was like zero extent <laughs> to zero extent was it good it was not yeah next but the, question yeah essay fact, done yeah <laughs> my my source that i would like to cite is reality reality done yeah but just the fact that i mean at the time i didn't think that it was a weird question because i had just grown up thinking you know america was a good project or whatever and even if some bad things happened overall. It was blah, blah, blah for the best. And so you could think about in that context, the manifest destiny as a, a complicated I 
ideology or something rather than one that was, you know, blatantly fucked up. Um, racist. Racist, and, yeah. Um, imperialistic, etc. Exploitative. Um, colonialist. Yeah. yeah. It really has, you know, even more so than just the conversations that happen when, like, moments happen in politics or, or current events, um, but the way that I think, you know, most people are educated has has a built-in uh, very limited memory for certain things. That's a great point. I think that's a really excellent point. Um, I don't know if you've read this book, but if anybody's interested in the the full reasons that the United States acted the way it did towards uh, South and Central America at that time, and indeed how that uh, legacy carried forward, particularly the economic benefits to certain people uh, of having major strife. I recommend Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, which is about disaster capitalism. And it is very good if you're interested in that stuff. That's been on my list to read, but I've heard it's, really great things about it. It is good. And it really gets to the to the heart of a lot of this stuff. Speaking of heart. Oh my God. Heart shows up three times in this poem in three slightly different ways. And I was curious if you have any thoughts about that. Because first it's being given and then it can't be eaten. And then it is the toughest part of the body. Yes. I have a lot of thoughts about this. Um, I think that the way that heart works in this poem is the the true strength of it as a poem, I think. Um, and I have this working theory about poems, which I've been thinking a lot about because I've been trying to come up with ways of, you know, assessing a poem on a sort of more essential level, even if it doesn't sort of account for all poems, like, you know, how do, how do poems like really work? Um, and I started thinking about this when I came across the, the quote, um, there's this quote by Robert Lowell uh, that says, you know, a poem is an event, not a record of an event. Um, and he may have gotten this from Walter Benjamin, who I think said something similar, but um, I was interested by this. And yet at the same time, I worried that it was just one of those like catchy things that people say about poetry because no one knows what it is. And it's like a poem's a thing. It's like poems are made of words, not ideas, or I don't know. There's like all sorts of little catchphrases that people use to define poetry. So I was interested in seeing if I could apply it. Um, and I started thinking about the way that time works. Um, we think of, you know, in writing, there's sort of two times that are happening in every piece of writing, whether it's poetry or prose. There's the sort of time that it takes you to read it, there's the reader's time, and then there's the time that the piece of writing is referring to. Um, and the interplay between these times is often, you know, in all genres, a source of productive tension. One really good example of the way time is manipulated is in Virginia Woolf's uh, To the Lighthouse. Uh, which is in three sections, 
And the first and third section takes, takes place over the course of one day each. And then the second section, which is called Time Passes, uh, is over several years. And there's a big main character that dies in the middle of the second section. And it happens in like a blink. And it's like a particularly devastating moment because you've spent so much time with that character in the first section. Um, and then they die in almost no time. But the novel has structured it so that the day, the one day took so much of your own reader's time, whereas the years took so much, so little of your time. And so that kind of, um, the tension between those two times makes that moment, I think, particularly effective. So I was thinking that maybe you could think about a poem becoming an event as when the two times sort of align with each other, that the reader's time aligns with the, um, the time of the poem, perhaps. Um, and in this case, I feel like that happens with the way that heart works. Um, and I started thinking about this by looking at this last couplet, um, which is very interesting to me. And it says, the heart is the toughest part of the body. Tenderness is in the hands. And I was thinking if you saw this on its own, you'd think maybe this is like a nice aphorism or maybe you'd think it's like a sappy thing. Um, it does have that very, it lends itself to a surface level reading that's very like, oh yeah, you know, you can be hard hearted, but like, oh, your tender hands do good works or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's talking about, you know, the heart in a figurative sense, which is already sort of a cliche in poetry. Um, and so if you saw that couplet, you know, by itself, it would not be a poem, I think. Um, it would be at best a clever aphorism or a clever saying, but it wouldn't be a poem. And I think the way that this poem becomes a poem is the way that Hart acquires sort of these contrasting meanings, um, which is to say in the beginning, as you were pointing out, um, there's two other moments where it's, I could take my heart, he said, and give it to a campesino, and he would cut it up and give it back. And then you can't eat heart in those four dark chambers where a man can be kept years. And here we have hearts as real literal pieces of organ uh, and talked about in very explicit ways of being sliced up, uh, removed from a body, potentially eaten. Um, and it's so the heart as a thing acquires, you know, it's, it's very concrete uh, status, which is not dissimilar to the way, um, as we were talking about, when we talked about, uh, you know, the eye, eyes poem, the, the moment in Call Me By Your Name with the peach, where the peach has its, its literal sensory existence before it acquires the figurative existence. But when the moment happens at the end, of the heart is the um, the toughest part of the body, tenderness is in the hands. 
you have two readings that are happening at the same time. One is the kind of aphoristic figurative thing that would be maybe even sentimental, which is paired against those literal, even gruesome or brutal sort of literal descriptions of the heart that are suddenly in your head at the same time. And to me, that's the moment at which the poem becomes a poem because the time is dependent on the moment at which those two things are happening are referring to something that has only happened in the poem itself. It's referring to the, the poem's literal descriptions of heart. And so the time that it takes uh, the poem to get to those two moments is also at the same time for you. Um, and so that kind of moment, I think, is, is like when it's kind of an event where you're like, oh, this is like happening. The poem is happening and I am encountering an event, which is the poem. That's like my first, <laughs> that's my first little, you know, little thought about it. I like that. I like that a lot because it is true that when you get to that last couplet, you've been primed to be thinking of not a figurative heart, but a literal heart, which then takes toughest part of the body, which instead of me necessarily thinking of it as like, oh, the heart can be resilient, which is a meaning that's there too. What I'm thinking about is that the heart is a muscle that's never stopped working until you die. And the meat of the heart is tough meat. And I'm thinking of all of that. And even when uh, the heart is previously discussed, you can't eat heart in those four dark chambers. Number one, I'm thinking about the physical chambers of the heart. So it's already pointing back, even though it's not talking about the literal heart. When it says those four chambers, it's still pointing back to a literal reading of heart. But also you can't eat heart has the literal. I mean, people aren't going to be eating hearts there. But also you can't chip away at someone's resolve if it is strong enough just by putting them into these horrible cells. The, the heart itself is the toughest part of the body. It doesn't get broken down just by putting being put in these terrible conditions um, if someone is committed to, to their resistance. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and it also is interesting in the second part, the tenderness is in the hands, which is sort of a subtler moment where we've, we've just had this seeming actually non sequitur where we've talked about you know, this moment with Vieira being buried, and then he's talking about, I could take my heart, he's saying that. Um, but then it's a boy soldier in the bone hot sun who sort of comes out of nowhere, seemingly. Um, and he's working his knife to peel the face from a dead man uh, and hang it from a tree. And so even though hands aren't mentioned it mentioned there, I feel like it's implied that his hands are like his hands are the tender hands in a way, which is like sort of unnerving uh, based on, you know, the kind of work that he's doing. Yeah. Um, it's very creepy. And also when it says that it's a branch of a tree flowering with such faces, it indicates there might already be other faces in the tree that this boy or his other, uh, there were a lot of child soldiers in these conflicts, particularly in the El Salvadoran Civil War. So it's a literal child soldier. Um, but it indicates that he or others like him have been cutting off faces and putting them up in this tree for a while, maybe. And that's just 
creepy uh a creepy yeah. image to a tree flowering with faces is just horrific yeah. um but it is also interesting because it indicates that this boy's heart has been hardened to whatever task he's being put to the heart is the toughest part of the body the tenderness is in the hands he is still a boy he still has child's hands that are doing this horrible work it's quite something i mean it's very chilling but the word flowering is so good um because it's because it's such a a beautiful word or like and it evokes something in its own context that we associate with spring or you know blossoming um beautiful flowers life etc um and you know porsche could have written you know that the tree had a lot of faces or um, hang it from the tree that that was littered with such faces or filled with such faces. And those would all be uh, strong in their own right. But flowering is particularly effective because of the the direct contrasting like connotation that flowering has against what it's describing. Definitely. It also adds to the those two couplets about the boy soldier and the face stuff uh take an interesting like natural turn because he's a boy soldier and then we find out he's in the bone hot sun so we already have like more of a sensory alive image and feeling then we do this remembrance of someone who's passed which is first talking about the lowering of the coffin and then what sounds like an interaction he had with somebody or a like written interaction that would be similar to something that was going on with him. But then when you take this detour, suddenly everything is like immediate in a different way because we're getting like information about what it actually feels like immediately. But it also, as I said, it's natural. There's the bone hot sun. There's a tree all of a sudden. It's a flowering tree. Like there's more natural imagery in those little couplets than there is in the whole rest of the of the poem. Mm-hmm. which I think is interesting because it is also, as you were saying, like flowering is a very spring rejuvenation life. Like this is a boy. He's young. He's a flowering person. He's, you know, turning into an adult and he could either continue to live in a country where he cuts off faces and he is a soldier or following the example of somebody like Viera, who is trying to create a country that would give him a different life. Mm-hmm. And hopefully his heart is tough enough that it would not stay in this place of violence. But uh, the boy's heart, that is, it's the toughest part of the body. Possibly that's pointing to its resilience. Hopefully his heart is tough enough to move him from where he is now into a new place. Yeah. And that also makes me think of, like, I think what we've been talking about is is the moments of like that event moment or the 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 moments of tension and meaning what those provide in a way it's maybe similar to how we talked about the um either the the dickinson to make a prairie or the sashadri nursing home where there were these gaps um and the gaps sort of allow this space for the reader to uh, do a lot of interpretive work. 
um, or imaginative work. And similarly, I think when you have two like meanings that are contained within the same word or the same phrase in the way that flowering is or the way that the heart is the toughest part of the body, um, it sort of like blows open the possibilities because they, they're paradoxical. And so it sort of makes a, a lot of space within itself, I think. Um, and then it makes me think of, you know, there's just so many directions. There's so many directions you can go in. It's a 12 line poem and it just gets so much going. Um, it does. This is one of those poems that just is like exploding with meaning all over the place. Every word or phrase just feels like it could go in five different directions and all of them are possibly equally intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, Oh my gosh. Okay. So this four dark chambers image is actually, when you think about it, it's like wild because basically there's a heart within a heart that's within a heart because if you can't eat heart in those four dark chambers. So you have a person who's, who's has their own heart. They have a literal heart that they are trying and failing to eat. And then they are contained within four dark chambers, a sort of like figurative heart um, that's sort of like also making it them unable to eat. But then to think about that space, the dark space as a heart, adds another insidious texture to that final line, the heart is the toughest part of the body. You know, not only is it uh, resilient, not only is it hardened, not only does it not give you sustenance, but it's a, it's a prison. It's a, it's a horrible prison. <laughs> I really, yeah, that's amazing. I love where that goes because we often talk about the concept of like the body politic, but if you think about a repressive regime, the heart of that regime is its restrictive uh, and violent, you know, perverted justice in air quotes that you can't see on the podcast, uh, justice system. And the heart of that is the prison. And then within that heart is this further four chamber, four dark one meter by one meter dark place chambers. So you really are just condensing down into this, you know, heart within a heart. I like that a lot. I think that's really yeah. cool. I like that you I like that you did that. <laughs> I didn't do it. It was Well, Fourche. okay. I like that you <laughs> pulled that out of the poem. Let's say that. Yeah, yeah, this is all Carolyn Forche. Yeah. No, she's she's such a good poemer. She is. Um, poemist. I don't know what the word is for people who write poems. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a, it's it people is, try to come up with words for it, but nothing ever sticks, you know. Poesizer. So. Sizer, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. And then it makes me think, feel like we've tackled a lot of it, but then the first um, couplet is interesting. I, I'm curious what you think about it. When Vieira was buried, we knew it had come to an end. His coffin rocking into the ground like a boat or a cradle. Um, that little simile, yeah, it's just an interesting move there. So... The coffin, I mean, we can sort of see the coffin descending into the ground um, and it sort of going back and forth a little bit. So, you know, it's an apt description, but then it's like a boat or a cradle. Um, 
which gives us two very different connotative things. Cradle, we, you know, we're lulling a baby to sleep. We're, you know, uh, whereas a boat, lots of things with boats. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, I was just curious because it, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't explicitly come back up. There's not like boat or cradle or things associated with those images that return. Uh, it's kind of said and left. And I was, yeah, I was curious how you were reading those. That part also, I sort of stopped at because it's also not really like, it's more direct than almost anything else in the poem in terms of how it's describing something. And also just because rocking into the ground like a boat or a cradle, we often talk about a rocking boat or rocking a cradle. Like it's a very straightforward that da, 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 one thing to the next kind of way of describing. It's like a rocking and a boat and a cradle, yeah. you know, right. that rocks. Um, it does create a very clear image of what's happening with this coffin and it makes it a very human experience. Like it isn't just being, airlifted in some sort of perfect lowering you see at least i envision it as like four people each on the end of ropes that are lowering it into the ground like it makes it a very down-to-earth image um the mention of the boat probably obviously put me in mind of billy collins's poem the dead just because it's boats and it's death and like you know and there's lots of images that have to do with the fairy people who take you across a river into the underworld. I think Cradle also points to, is almost a hint towards the boy soldier who comes in later. And it is also a hint to life and birth and holding on to, you know, regeneration in the face of death. Um, so I, that's just like a lot of different places I went with those. I don't know that I have a great, uh, a great hot take on it. Yeah, yeah. No, but that that those seem like good readings. Um, yeah, and it is interesting to think that rocking a boat, rocking a cradle are the the reader does not have to stretch. Those are like pre made poetic things. Um, they also say don't rock the boat, as in like don't cause trouble, which is very much what Vieira was doing. He was absolutely rocking the boat. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And in a way, I wonder, this might be a far stretch, but the last couplet, it's not like ready-made poetry, but it, it does seem a little more like on its own could be read as sort of a cliche. And the sort of deliberate playing with cliche maybe is set up a bit with the very straightforward simile in the first couplet. Do you have anything else? I don't think so. Um, other than to note just what a major concern all of this was at the time that this was being written. And in the 1980s, there was just huge popular concern. As you noted, like the book that this is in became a bestseller. It was on the popular mind. Uh, the lead single from the Rolling Stones 1983 album was about like death squads and disappearances in South America. And there's just like a lot of popular culture from the time. And I feel like that is something that has not survived in the same way that other major like political concerns that were popular culture concerns do. Um, I feel like that has really just fallen away. And particularly in the context of this poem about memory, it's 
it's good to to have that in there. Yeah, definitely. Um, should we read it again? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Because one is always forgotten. In memoriam, Jose Rodolfo Vieira, 1939 to 1981, El Salvador. When Vieira was buried, we knew it had come to an end, his coffin rocking into the ground like a boat or a cradle. I could take my heart, he said, and give it to a campesino, and he would cut it up and give it back. You can't eat heart in those four dark chambers where a man can be kept years. A boy soldier in the bone hot sun works his knife to peel the face from a dead man and hang it from the branch of a tree flowering with such faces. The heart is the toughest part of the body. Tenderness is in the hands. Thank you all for sticking around for a somewhat supersized episode of Close Talking. This is the part of the show where we remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and that you can find it all over the internet on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, or on Google Play. Uh, If you want to keep in touch with Connor or myself, Twitter is a great way to do that. The show is at Close Talking on Twitter. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn, and Connor is at Hot Sauce Boxed. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking. We've got a Facebook page where we share all kinds of different news articles about poetry. We put the links to the show up there, and it's a great place to keep up with what's going on in between episodes. If you have comments on this episode or thoughts for any future episodes, you can also send us an email. And we love getting suggestions for poems and hearing your thoughts on whether we missed anything or if you think there's another reading of a poem that we've covered uh, that, we should, that we should think about. Uh, you can send any and all of that stuff to our email address, which is closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you in any and all different ways that you deem best. So thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time.